Hello, everyone, and welcome to the ninth episode of For What It's Worth. Man, do I have a show for you today. Uh, I just got out of an infrared sauna, so I am literally on fire. And uh, let's just jump right into this episode. Uh, first of all, I lied again. Uh, I told you a couple of weeks ago I was going to do a newsletter, and then I told you, ah, nope, that was inaccurate. I am not going to do a newsletter. Well, guess what? I am going to do a newsletter. I'm aiming for one a month, and I think I have a tact. Uh, still not really selling anything, but um, consolidating one specific kind of post that I do, putting it in a newsletter, and just seeing what happens. And I'm I'm waiting for the first one to land because I know that there's a lot of people that signed up for this years ago who forgot that they signed up and uh, are probably going to send me irate emails, which are always fun, and they keep me warm on those on those uh, chilling Southern California summer days. So uh, point number one, I've got to go back. There's a little bit more Patrick Swayze I have to get out of my system. I was remiss. Uh, I forgot about The Outsiders, maybe the best movie of his entire career of that generation, probably the single most heavily loaded cast of any movie from the 1980s, if I had to guess. I mean, pretty much every single person that went on in that movie went on to become famous. So yes, Swayze was even more than Roadhouse, Red Dawn, and uh, what am I what am I forgetting? Dirty Dancing, all the others that I mentioned before. Uh, now, the second part of this first point about Patrick Swayze is that after I I did the the uh, after I did this recording last week, and I talked about Patrick Swayze, my wife had a jewelry show at our house, and I found myself thinking about Patrick Swayze, and I was like, I wonder if Roadhouse is on Netflix or Amazon, and sure enough, there it was. So halfway through the movie, I'm hiding in my office because our house is filled with people looking at my wife's stuff, and I was like they can't know that I'm watching Roadhouse. It's embarrassing. So I had to hide every time someone would walk by. It was like in the movies, I had like a second screen that I could immediately press a button and it would, and Roadhouse would disappear. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, like, uh, I don't know, the Atlantic would show up and I'd be like, oh, just doing some research, uh, lady, you know, honey, whatever. So anyway, I hid Patrick Swayze. I don't feel good about that, but I just wanted to get it off my chest. Okay, point number two. I want to talk a little bit about what happened to Julian Assange this week, and um, it's pretty interesting. I like bringing his name up in conversation just to see what happens, and a lot of times what I'm finding is that um, the general public or the people that I would bring it up with really have no idea the background and the actual factual story of Julian Assange because he's become so politicized. But to me, I don't care if you love him or you hate him or you love whistleblowers or hate whistleblowers. I think per my personal opinion is that, um, you know, that's the point of journalism and the point of whistleblowers is when you see wrongdoing as, an, as a citizen, you're supposed to point that out. You're supposed to observe it and point it out and say, hey, I just saw something wrong that was happening. And to like criminalize these people is very peculiar because I always look at that as and know that whoever is trying to criminalize the behavior T tends to have something to hide. So there were two parts of this that I found really interesting. The first part was they arrested him and the, the new indictment that came out, there was no new data about the on this indictment. Everything that they claimed was new and the reason why they brought him in was we knew going all the way back to the initial investigation of Julian Assange. But the thing is, and that's the point I made about uh, bringing up his name in conversation and realizing that most people don't know the story. All they know is Julian Assange WikiLeaks, and that's it. And they've typically formed a really quick opinion of good thing, bad thing. 
but they don't know the story. So when the new story breaks and they arrest him and I'm reading this thing and I'm like, wait a second, there isn't anything on here we didn't know before, but I think the public is brain dead and doesn't understand that. The second thing that's really troublesome is that what, they, what the new indictment does is it criminalizes investigative journalism. So as a journalist, your job is to get sources and to get those sources to pony up as much of the data as you possibly can while protecting the identity of the source. That's how investigative journalism works. I, for one, am a huge believer, a huge proponent of investigative journalism, regardless of who gets thrown under the bus. This is not, again, a political issue. Which, which Americans have once again turned this into as investigative journalism is now seen as some sort of criminal enterprise. This is a really scary thing because let's face it, there's a lot of people in our country that are trying to hide things from other people, right? And this is not, again, a Republican-Democrat thing. This is an industry thing. It's a business thing. It's a personal thing. We now know as of a month ago, this is an education thing, right? So let's say that the, the USC scandal the education scandal, which is kind of a joke because this has been going on forever. But let's say that we didn't know about that. And these kids got into these schools and took those places from other kids who might have you know, been more deserving of those spots. That's what investigative journalism does. It brings all of these things to light, right? This is the watchdog of the people. Having been a journalist at one point in my life, this is something that I really hold sacred. And trust me, when I worked as a journalist, I was a photojournalist. I wasn't writing a ton. I was writing a little bit, mostly primarily photographing. A lot of what we did were were stories about saying, hey, this is happening over here, the, you know, whatever, the Border Patrol is saying this, but this is actually what's happening. And then it's like, okay, you bring it to light and changes have to be made. Hence the idea of journalism itself. So basically what you're what you're doing here is when you criminalize investigative journalism, we're all gonna suffer for it because Man, that is not, at this point in our culture or society, that's not something that we can sacrifice, in my opinion. So anyway, that is my second point on today's For What It's Worth. The first, back-to-back Swayze. The second, Assange, which sounds so exotic, but he's kind of a tool, let's face it. He's a total tool, but his service is an interesting thing. Okay, number three, I had the first nightmare in a long time. I don't remember the last time I had a nightmare. But I had one the other night, and it was a doozy, and I just want to walk you through it. So I uh, was living here in Orange County, and I, had, I was friends with a family who I knew. I couldn't recognize any of the family members except for the father, who was a combination. His face, his body, his mannerisms were the perfect blend of two people that I know in real life. And so these were really wealthy people. They lived in a giant house, probably in like Irvine or Shady Canyon or something. And they bought a tiger, a full-size tiger, because that's what really wealthy people do from time to time. In fact, when I worked in Phoenix at the newspaper, there was a guy there that had tigers in his backyard, and I had to photograph at his house once, and I thought that's kind of peculiar. And I think Mike Tyson bought a tiger, right? That's what they spoofed in, uh, in uh, The Hangover. So anyway, in my dream, I'm at this family's house, and uh, you know, it's this massive mega mansion here in OC, and I walk in, and the dad has this huge full-size tiger on a metal leash, and, he's, and the kids are around, and the family, and this tiger is loose, and I'm thinking, holy shit, and so I'm scared, but I'm like, don't show any fear, because the tiger's going to go after me, and I'm thinking, this is a monumentally bad idea. So the, something happens, the, the kids go on vacation, uh, the mom and the kids are gone, and the tiger gets out. And so I don't know this. No one seems to know this. It's a dream. People play along with this. So I show up at the house, and, I, and no one's there. And I'm like, man, that's weird. 
And then all of a sudden the dad comes in and I see the look on his face and I can see fear on his face and he's got like cuts and scrapes on him and he's got the tiger and he lets the tiger loose in the house and he looks at me and he says, yeah, the tiger got out, we got him back. And then he said something along the lines of, we've got some problems. And now this is the part of the dream where when you're in your dream and you're thinking, hey, cool, like there, there's you in the dream and then there's you as a human being who's asleep and dreaming, that person says, hey, cool, I'm dreaming. This will be really great. Well, this is the part of the dream where that went, took a 90-degree turn, where, where I went, okay, this is no longer a dream. This is a nightmare. So my physical sleeping body was just electrified because now the dad says, yeah, we got some problems. And what he was basically hinting at was, I don't have control of the tiger anymore. And so I look over, and the only thing between me and the tiger is a couch and an Xbox. And I'm like, I'm screwed. I'm screwed, and I am, I'm not, I'm not going to play hero here. I'm saving my own ass. And so the dad and I have the same idea at the same moment. And in front of me is a, is a glass sliding door that goes out into the pool area. And then off sort of diagonally to the left is, left is like a driveway that's heading out into oblivion. But to my immediate left is another hallway, but the hallway is glass-walled all the way up, like 20 feet tall. And I'm thinking, there's no way in hell I can get up that. You can't, there's no traction on glass. I'm never going to make it out to the oblivion. The tiger, if I dive in the pool, I don't know, maybe he's coming in after me. That's not a good, that's not a good plan. And so I just basically look at the dad and I'm like, sorry, dude every man for himself. And I bolt and I go down that immediate left hallway for some reason. And then I realize that the framing of the glass panels has little tiny wooden edging. And having been a climber at one point in my life, I was like, baby, that is all I need. And I am like Spider-Man up to the top, like 20 feet up the wall. And I'm thinking, okay, the tiger could jump through the glass, shatter the whole thing, and I come crashing down. But I don't think that's likely because the dad decides to make a run for the oblivion and the tiger sees him running. And now I'm, I'm still asleep. I'm still in the dream. There's still only two of me. There's the, there's me in the dream. And then there's me, the physical human who's dreaming. And the tiger goes after him and I am up high enough that I can, I can't see the final crime scene, but I can hear what the tiger is doing to the dad. And this is where it gets creepy because this no longer, this, this turned, there was no, nothing dreamlike about this anymore. This was 100% pure nightmare because the sounds coming out of the father were legitimately what, would it, what it would sound like if this actually happened. Now, this is, it was so bad that I somehow manufactured a third version of myself that talked to myself in my dream and said, dude, wake up, this sucks. And then that third person was like, tap, 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 tap. Dude, wake up, wake up, wake up. And I woke myself up. And I remember waking up and thinking, oh my God. Thank God that was a nightmare and not, not in real life kind of thing. So I love, uh, I mean, a part of me loves nightmares because they're so infrequent. And I always wonder to myself, what triggered the nightmare? Um, I was prepping for a colonoscopy. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, full disclosure, that might have had something to do with it. I'd only had half of the preparatory drink. And for those of you out there who have never experienced the joy and ecstasy of a colonoscopy, let me tell you, it's awesome. You get these two bottles of prep, and the bottles are named something insulting like go lightly, right? Which is the polar opposite of what happens when you drink the prep. It's literally, watch films of Mount Vesuvius, and you'll have a pretty good idea of what happens. 
But as an older, distinguished gentleman, this is now just a part of my life. Uh, it's not as bad as everyone thinks. And then when you go in to get your colonoscopy, by the way, and I know I'm, t I'm, I'm off on a tangent here. I went from nightmare to colonoscopy, which in some ways is you know running parallel. When you go in and they put you in this table and you're on this movable bed, you know, and you're strapped in there like an astronaut, and uh, there's cables and cords and plugs and machines, and there's literally, let me think, one, two, three, four, five people in the room in addition to the guy who's actually, or the person who's going to perform the colonoscopy, and I volunteered to have a, uh, uh, a health, a medical student come in and watch. She was a young girl, and I was like, better you than me, but sure, you want to you wanna see, uh, you want to go to Mars? Be my guest. So anyway, Maybe the, the colon prep was what triggered the nightmare, but um, I'm no doctor, so I'm going to leave that um, leave that there. Okay, point number four. So let's re recap here. Point number one, Swayze. Point number two, Assange. Point number three, nightmare. Point number four is last Sunday, a week from today, week week ago today, I reviewed portfolios at something called Catchlight, which is an organization based out of San Francisco. If you don't know Catchlight, look them up. They offer $30,000 grants to visual storytellers. So that, to me, is a legitimate amount of money. Like, you can, you can really do something significant with that kind of money. You'll notice in the photo industry and the grant industry, and yes, I'm calling it the grant industry, there are a lot of what I would call tiny grants, right? 1500 bucks, 2000 2500 And I'm not dismissing that that can be a significant amount of money depending on where you are in a project. But like 2500 bucks to do a project, then you've got to pay tax on it or whatever. That's not a lot of money to get something done. While it's 30000 you could even, if you had nothing done on the project, you could really do something complete. So if you don't know Catchlight, check this out. They, I rarely review portfolios at all anymore. I, I honestly don't really know what to tell photographers, professional photographers, because everybody's making pictures. We've all heard the same story a thousand times over. The phone has just diluted the world. You know, we've, we basically, there's been a deluge of imagery that's just impossible to consume. And consequently, the people, in my opinion, who are being impacted the most are the professional image makers, because you're vying for an attention span that's getting smaller every single day. And so it's not, that's why so many photographers are, are going away, going out of business, changing careers, et cetera, because it's just really hard to get traction and attention. But I agreed to review portfolios, which I did from like 9.30 in the morning until 12. I think I looked at six people total. And when I review portfolios, um, I typically try not to give people a review, a standard review or what they're expecting, because I'm not really concerned about their photography, if that makes, probably makes no sense at all, but let me explain. So when the people would sit down in front of me one at a time, you had 15-minute uh, timelines, and then someone comes along and tells you you've got five minutes, you've got three minutes, you've got one minute, et cetera. So they would sit down, and they would immediately start going for either their box of prints, which is preferable, or their laptops or iPads. Anybody that I saw with a laptop or iPad, I told them, please don't do that in the future. Always make prints. It's, you're going to be uh, received, I think, a lot better. But I, of six people, I only looked at one portfolio. And people are like, what do you mean you only looked at one portfolio? Well, here's why. So, and I think this is fascinating. When people would sit down and start reaching for their portfolio, I'd say, hang on a second. Why are you sitting in front of me? Why are you here? And none of the six really had a good answer. So think about that. And I'm not knocking these people at all. They were all accomplished photographers. Even though I didn't look at the work of five of them, 
I got a glimpse and I have looked after. So I know I just wanted to check in and see what people were up to and what they were doing. And some of these people had been assistants for famous photographers. Others had been one, one kid had been to the North Korea, China border and done essays. And he'd worked in Israel on the West bank. And, you know, and he was young, he was probably in his early twenties kind of thing. Uh, but I said, why are you here? No one had a great answer. And then I said, do you understand what your role in society is as a creative person? And that is where things took an interesting turn because I was greeted with, uh, with kind of looks of bewilderment, not in a bad way, but in a good way of like, hey, I've never thought about that before. And to me, that is the conversation. Every single one of those people and every single one of the people in attendance in the room, which I'm guessing was, let's say, 200 people, every single one of them can make decent photographs or even better than decent photographs. They're all solid. I don't need to look at your work right? It's, photography is now a lot less about those actual images, depending on what you want to do, and a lot more about this much broader conversation of what it means to be creative in society today. And you as a creative have a responsibility because the public does not look at you like a normal human being. They look at you as an artist, whether you consider yourself an artist or not. With that comes responsibility and comes a power. And you have to learn to exploit the power of what that means without abusing it, and most importantly, without compromising it. The second you compromise your creative power, you never, you can't get it back. At least you can't get it back with the group that you've compromised it with. And that's a really hard lesson. It's a fine line. But when you're starting out as a photographer and everybody's after you to do things that might compromise you, you have to have the strength and the finances to walk away and say no if you don't want to do that. And, what, and you saying no, the guy down the street might say yes. The guy down the street might look at it in a totally different point of view from you and say, hey. So I recently was uh, reaching out to, to different friends to get involved in a project, and some uh, responded, well, I would say very, very negatively and said, no, no, no. And they kind of saw like um, they saw evil in this project. And I was kind of surprised by it because the next person I called was like, oh, yeah, I totally want to be involved. And I'd run the exact same description by them. And they'd say like, well, you know, I've been doing this my entire life. I, I, my work goes into the world in a variety of different ways. I'm not expecting X, Y, and Z from this project. I'm getting that from this other project. And the project that you're asking me about seems interesting and different. And sure, I'd love to be a part of that. So it's, and, and I'm not, that, these, both of these responses are totally valid. It's just puzzling at times to try to work backwards and decipher what the rationale is behind it. So anyway, Catchlight, reviewing the portfolios was, was pretty amazing. Um, it made me actually want to review portfolios again because these types of questions uh, was interesting to me to watch the reaction. And throughout these portfolio reviews, I would say, hey, do you want to look at your images now? And every single person said, no, I don't want to look at that. That's not important. I want to keep having this conversation. So to me, it's something I'm going to work on a lot here on the site is to sort of bring what this means uh, into the light because people get consumed today in photography for all kinds of weird, weird things and weird reasons. And um, I think there's a lot more out there. There's a much broader discussion to have, in other words. Okay, that was point number four. Point number five is I want to ask you, I don't want to talk to you about this. I want to ask you about photo education, in particular, online photo education. How do you actually feel about online photo education? You have things like lynda.com and, and Creative Live, which I have done, I think, twice, two or three times in the past. I've done Creative Live, all for Blurb. Although at one point in Creative Live, I did do a program about documentary photography, I think, or maybe it was documentary portraiture. 
So I've done Creative Live a few times. I loved it. I thought it was a great program. Um, how do you feel about learning photography in general? Um, a lot of the people that I run in today are quote unquote self-taught. And I think there's an upside to that and a downside. A lot of people think that I, like I studied photojournalism. I have a degree in photojournalism from University of Texas. I worked at newspapers. I worked at magazines. I really spent, I spent a decade of my life educating myself about photography. Um, and, and to me, that was a critical part of, of why I am the photographer I am today. And being self-taught, very, very occasionally I run into someone who's self-taught where I think, wow, you know, I can see this person having a multi-decade career. Most of the other times I see people who are self-taught as like dabblers or they're copying things that they've already seen other people do. They'll look at Instagram, see who has the following, they'll copy that, or they'll see an essay somewhere and they'll go, oh, wow, I, you know, that, that guy's got traction. He got a museum show and a gallery show. I'm just going to go copy what he did. You know, that sort of started happening in the early 2000s of people just looking at the internet and copying. But I'm interested in f actual photo education because, and the reason I'm saying this, is you have programs like Linda and Creative Live, and I think that they do provide a really good service. And then there's a lot of YouTube online education that I frankly find really puzzling because 99.9% .9 of what I find never talks about images. It talks about the technical aspects behind photography. And let me just say this, the technical aspects of photography in photojournalism school lasted approximately two weeks. And that, my friends, covered everything to do with the camera and we're using four by fives at the time. So that covered everything to do with the camera and everything to do with how you worked in a dark room. So we're talking about a lot of complex stuff that was all covered in two weeks. And then we never talked about it again. The rest of the time in school, we talked about actual image making, about how to make images. What are the components that make a great image? How do you get access in the field? How do you do research? How do you package things up? How do you edit? How do you sequence? How do you speak about your work? How do you speak about others' work? How do you deal with people speaking about your work? All these things of what it, what's required to be a photographer. And the online education I see is a lot of people talking about tech and talking about hardware and then shooting pictures of like things in their office and blowing them up to 600% to look at, you know, fluoride elements and, you know, purple aberratic fringing and all these other things that I'm like, what does this really have to do with anything? So I look at online photo education and I'm like, that's interesting. Um, I'm curious who out there is interested in, in the actual nuts and bolts of dissecting images. I'm curious, let me know. And also, how many of you out there have done a consultancy or done a mentorship? Um, I live in Santa Fe part-time. And the Santa Fe Workshops has a, I believe they still have this, a mentorship program where they have like six photographers that you can sign up with over uh, an extended period of time. And they will mentor you, which I find an interesting thing as well. Norman Mauskoff, last time I checked, was one of those people at Santa Fe. He's awesome. He's a guy that I'm going to talk about here eventually. Uh, if you don't know Norman, check him out. But I'm curious what your thoughts are about photo education, about learning imagery as opposed to learning the hardware, software, nuts and bolts, technical, audience building, all the sort of 90% that we spend our lives as photographers today, 90% of your time is spent not taking images. It's, it's spent doing this other ephemera. Anyway, let me know. Okay, point number six. This is going to be an endless podcast, by the way. Point number six, I want to tell you about a photographer you should know about if you don't. I just saw him speak on Friday night. His name is Joel Sartore. It's S-A-R-T-O-R-E. He's a National Geographic photographer. He's been around the geographic for a long time, but I'm going to bring him up for a couple of reasons. 
Um, I met him probably 20 years ago. I had not seen him in at least a decade, probably more. Um, Joel is a great speaker. And the, the first point I want to bring up about him is he's funny. And this is so sorely lacking in photo uh, photography world these days. Uh, and he made a point early on in his lecture that the geographic didn't, ha when he came on board, the geographic didn't have anybody that could do funny. And think about that. They probably had at the time that he joined on, which is back in the day, they probably had 50 photographers and nobody could do funny. And to me, it's all, uh, and, and during these portfolio reviews that I did at Catchlight, I told people, be honest and be humorous. If you can do those two things, you're, uh, you're automatically in the 1% of the photo industry because most people take themselves so seriously, they can, it makes them difficult to be around. Trust me, I've been around professional photographers for the last 30 years, and man, at times you're like, why am I spending time around this community? So Joel is really funny. He's a great speaker. In 17 years at the Geographic, he did 30 different essays which is remarkable because you're talking, you know, six months shoot times and prep times and research and, you know, tons and tons and tons of travel. I don't know how he did it. And he also picked up some nasty, nasty stuff along the way, diseases and had some scares and stuff like that. So, but anyway, he gives this talk. It's really funny. But at the end of those 17 years and 30 stories, he's like, you know, I'm not making the impact that I thought I was going to make because within a few weeks of, a, of an issue coming out, the stories are lost and forgotten. So he did something very interesting. He kind of drew a line in the sand, and he said, what do I care about? And I'm, whatever I come up with, whatever the answer is, I'm going to pour myself into it a thousand times over. And that is the one thing I'm going to do forever, and I'm going to leave a lasting impact. You know, he looked at the work of Edward Curtis, and he said, wow, Curtis has this archive of the Native Americans that nobody else has. Like, that was his entire existence, was to do that. So Joel created this thing called the Photo Arc, A-R-K. And in essence, what it is, is I would classify it as a race against time. It's a race to catalog animal species on Earth. And these are like studio portraits of animal species on Earth. And it's everything. It's insects and fish and amphibians and mammals and everything else. Now, if you get a chance to see him talk, go and see it. Because he talks a little bit about the psychology of how you have to do an essay like this. And you have to, in some way, in some degree, you have to pander a little bit. Because things like primates and mammals get the bulk of the attention of animal species. So you can't lead with fish or amphibians because people are like, eh, whatever, fish or amphibians. But in essence, what it is is that we're killing off species at, an, at just an astounding rate. And so I, he wants to catalog everything. And so by the end of the year, he will have somewhere in the ballpark of 10,000 species, which, by the way, is probably not many in the grand scheme of things, but they're disappearing. And so he's got a lot of images where he has literally the last one of the species in existence. And so it's like, hey, this is a, you know, such and such fruit fly. This was the last one. They're gone. This was the last whatever. Now, my mom is going to be bummed. Because someone asked with climate change, what's the, what species is getting drilled the hardest? And, and apparently amphibians are really in trouble. There's a fungus that's spreading around the world and killing off amphibians. And my mom is a huge frog fan. She's been a frog fan her entire life. Everything in our house was frog-related for decades. In Wyoming as a kid, I would collect every single kind of frog I could find and bring it to my mom because that's what I did. Maybe that's why I have warts all over my body. Just kidding. So anyway, Sartori uh, did this project called PhotoArc. Take a look at it. Look it up. I just made an email this morning to someone who's in the education space, and I told them about this project and said, hey, your school and your network of schools should uh, get involved in this because I think, one, the kids would totally dig it. And there's nothing better than getting 
second graders through 12th graders fired up about some topic because they're the future of our world. And man, maybe they can make a change that my generation apparently has no interest in, uh, in changing this stuff. So anyway, you should know about Joel Sartori. Look him up. Okay, two last points. The one very quick. The seventh point is I want to ask you about Narbox, G-N-A-R-B-O-X. It's a, it's a way of backing up. It's a device. It backs up your, your data in the field, stills, motion, audio, whatever. They're pretty interesting. comes with an app. Does anyone out there use these? I have a couple of friends that have them, love them. And my interest in this is working in the field and traveling without taking a laptop. That's my goal. I want to be able to go into the field and back everything up. And if I need access to it, I can get it. But that's not the point. I don't want to travel with a laptop. I don't want to do email. I don't want to go online. I don't want to carry the weight. I just want to take my two Fujis, my two lenses, a bag of cards, and a Narbox and back everything up. But I'm curious who out there has one, who uses one, etc. And uh, And that's it. Okay, the final point is I want to talk about Apple apologists. And the reason I'm asking or talking about this is that I've, been, I've used Apple for the last, I don't know, 25 years of my life, basically. There was one point in there when I worked for Kodak that I had a, a IBM ThinkPad, which we called StinkPads. And they would get this thing called the blue screen of death where you would be typing along merrily and then all of a sudden it would just boop and the screen would go dark blue and then it was dead. And I went back to Kodak one time and they had an office building. There was a room in an office building that was stacked floor to ceiling with like dead ThinkPads, right? But that was probably 20 years ago. So ever since then, I've been, I've been an Apple user. I have had a myriad of issues with Apples over the years. I bought a MacBook, an original MacBook that came with a faulty hard drive. I bought an iMac G5 that came with a faulty power supply. Um, and this, by the way, was all of the models that came out. They all had the faulty power supply. It wasn't just me. So what I've found is that Apple apologists are very peculiar because in the face of just massive amounts of mounting data about how bad Apple hardware has become, they continue to find reasons to, to make excuses. And what I often get is from friends, oh, I've never had a problem with Apple. And then you dig into the conversation and you realize they've had a thousand problems with Apple over the years or they barely use their computer, or they do like email and occasionally Lightroom and that's it. And then, you know, they, they basically, you know, oh, this is fine, this is fine. So, like I said, I've had a, a thousand things go wrong, but I hate Windows, right? Which is the primary reason why I've never gone, gone away from Apple products. So I'm looking, you know, I have, an, I have a laptop now that Blurb has assigned to me. It's a 2015, so it's long in the tooth. I just did a, edited a film the other day that I shot up in Colorado last uh, summer. And I had been editing this on a laptop. It's a three and a half minute film. And, and exporting that through Premiere on my laptop was taking like 30 minutes, right? And the laptop would get so hot, I have a piece of metal that I have to prop it up on. And it heats up my entire office and it sounds like it's going to explode. So I go to a filmmaker's house. He's got a five-year-old iMac, but it's maxed out, you know, whatever. He rips through that same render in like uh, 90 seconds. Boom, render, film is rendered. And I'm like, holy cow. So at some point I got to get a new computer. Of course, I'm like, well, of course I get a MacBook Pro. So yesterday I'm on YouTube and I'm kind of looking around MacBook Pros, like what, what happens? And uh, I hear this, uh, I find this YouTube film of a guy who's a reviewer who loves Apple. And I'm like, okay. And he's talking about the new, the next gen MacBook Pro 2019, which apparently is in the works right now being redesigned. So I don't know all the details about the MacBook Pro other than my wife has one. And other than that, I'd heard rumors of, of multitudes of problems with these devices. So here's a guy, he's not an Apple hater. Not only that is he's an apologist. He loves Apple. And he shows a picture of his current laptop 
And he's like, okay, you know, here's my current laptop. Yep, it crashes every time I plug in a USB-C because there's some problem with the chip that they had in this. So apparently it turns out that there are three versions of the new MacBook Pro. There was like a 2017, a 2018, and 2019. The 2017s apparently had a problem with this chip that crashes when you, when you, when you use a USB-C, which is the only port on the damn laptop. Then he talks about processor problems, overheating process uh, problems, throttling of the chip problems because the computers are too thin to vent. And then we get to, uh, he's talking about, he's listing all these things. I swear to God, he listed 10 things. And by the way, his keyboard failed over and over and over again because we know in 2017 they came out with the butterfly keyboard. That was faulty, didn't have the dust guard. So they switched it in 2018. Apparently that didn't work. And apparently the new ones don't work either. So there's three forms of this. And if they are redesigning the new MacBook Pro, it means that the current MacBook Pro will be the shortest run of any MacBook Pro in their existence. That tells me that there is something fundamentally wrong. Now, as I'm watching this film, I hear my wife yell from the other room, hey, what's the deal with the keyboards? Because my space bar isn't working. So she has a brand new MacBook Pro 15. And now there's something wonky happening with the keyboard, which we all know apparently is something that they can't fix. You send it off, they keep it for a week, they swap it out, fix it, clean it, do whatever, and send it back. People are having to do this three or four times. And yet I still reach out to all my friends with Apple, and no one seems to ever have a single problem with anything they've ever bought. And I'm, that's what I don't get, is why, for some reason, with this company, is it impossible for us to say, look you're better off buying a Dell. You're better off with Lenovo. You're better off with Microsoft. Because I, I went to Microsoft a couple of weeks ago. I was at the mall and I, for some reason, I was returning something and I looked over and there was a Microsoft store. I went in there. There were four laptops that I looked at and said, this seems a hell of a lot better than the MacBook Pro. They have better ports. They have 4K touchscreens. They're $1,000 cheaper. They have faster processors. I'm like, what the hell? What is happening? Why do all of us allow... Apple to get away with all this stuff. And don't even get me started on the iPhone. So the new trick with me and the iPhone, and someone told me that I was making this up because again, Apple apologists, they said, oh, that's impossible. That would never happen. My iPhone is turning itself on, number one, which this person said was impossible, but it's happening. And if you Google this, it's not just me. It's a lot of people. Turns itself on, listens to my conversation, and then asks me if I want to open an app named after one of the words that I said in my conversation. And that word does not have to be a known app. It could be water bottle. And it will say, boop, Siri comes on and says, do you want to open the water bottle app? So yeah, my phone's listening to me and it turns itself on and the battery doesn't hold a charge and it's probably six months old. So again, it's like, I feel like Apple is going backwards at a thousand miles an hour with their hardware. And now they're coming out with streaming television. Gee, that's exactly what we need is another streaming television uh, network. And I'm sitting here thinking, what the hell am I going to do when I need a new computer? And I'm seriously thinking about just buying some weird hand-built PC little box online that I can buy for a lot less and run it uh, and just run some basic processor. And because, you know, Lightroom is going to look the same and Gmail is going to look the same. So I don't know. Tell me what to do, people. And are you one of those people that apologizes for Apple? Like, here's the thing. There's another guy on YouTube named Dave2D, who I don't know, but I like him. He seems like a pretty normal, level-headed dude. He's got a gazillion followers, and he, all he does is tech reviews, right? So he seems like a guy that is kind of down the middle. I think he's more of a PC guy than an Apple guy. But, you know, he, he kind of gives the, uh, the rundown on what's good, what's not too good. And he's like, man, I just, 
I don't know what's happening with Apple, but it doesn't look look so good. But I'm not sure why we keep giving them the benefit of the doubt. So when you look at processing power with PCs and you look at processing powers on Apple, someone told me the other day that the new Apple has the, high, the fastest processor that you can possibly get anywhere. And then I watched something like Dave 2D and he's like, no, here are the processing numbers on the new Intel PC chips. And I'm like, those look a lot faster than the Apple chip. So I don't know. Help me. What the hell do I do when I need another computer? My current solution right now, if you ask me this particular second of this particular day, my strategy is to buy a Mac Mini and then just get a fast Mac Mini and eliminate buying an Apple laptop at all. Then just buy a really cheap miniature PC laptop that I can travel with to do email because my iPad is completely unreliable as well, by the way. Um, it was fine for a long time, and now the battery is not really holding a charge as well as it was. It's, it's, it's dropped off uh, quickly, although I do happen to like the iPad Pro. I would never buy a regular iPad. I would only buy the one with the pencil because that's the only real use in my mind. Is I mean, I could do everything else on my, on my laptop. But the thing is, with the PCs, I can get one that has a 4K touchscreen with a pen, and I can get everything in one for $1,000 cheaper than Apple with a faster processor and a better keyboard. So again, am I high? Am I living in the California free love, free weed society too long? Am I looking at this the wrong way? Please, people out there. See, my iPad just turned itself on and asked if I was saying something. I'm not joking. It just happened in real time. So uh, apparently Apple is listening to me. Or maybe you're listening to me. Or maybe Department of Homeland Security. I don't know. Because what I'm saying here, people, is life-changing, life as we all know. So this has been a long episode. I really appreciate you tuning in. I'm asking for data from you people this time. So don't be lazy and uh, don't comment. Get your asses on there. I expect full 5,000-word essay responses in real time. I hope you enjoyed this essay. Uh, not essay. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And I will be back in the near future with mucho mas. Adios. Hasta luego.